The following message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. Jeremy covered last week, verses 1 through 10. He talks about love, loving one another as believers. 
what does it look like? How do we love one another within the church? What does Christian love look like? And that really covers 1 through 10. And now in this section, he's going to show the counterpart of that. He's going to show the opposite end. What does it look like for non-believers? What's the danger of not loving our brothers? He's really contrasting two different lifestyles, and we're going to see these two contrasts throughout this text. We're going to see the love of Christians in 1 through 10, and then all the way from 11 on to the end of the chapter, we're going to see what does it look like when you don't love? What does that reflection look like? And we'll start off with verse 11. This is what he says. He starts off by saying, for. Usually you might start off uh, explaining just the first word of the text, but what happens here is John is summing up everything that he just said. So verses 1 through 10, he compares darkness to light and living righteously to living unrighteously. And then he says, the one who lives righteously will have love for his brothers. Then he says, in light of this, for, that's what this whole section after is, for in light of all that that I just said, if you're going to live righteously, you're going to love your brothers, for this is what it looks like. This is now applied to life. This is how it's going to go. And this is what he says. For this message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So who's he referring to as this message that you've heard from the beginning? We can't take it back all the way to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and say, you know, there's not a point where he says, love one another. You possibly could look into the Old Testament. It is commanded for us to love one another. But what's he referring to? What's this from the beginning, the message that you have heard from the beginning? Is he referring to the gospel? This is what I think he's getting at. I'm going to tie two verses together that John previously said, and I think John is really summing up the whole message of the gospel. We all know John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him, or whosoever would believe in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then also John says, the beginning of the gospel, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And that word became flesh. So we have two aspects of two things that John's talking about. Because of the Father's love, he sends his Son to die on the cross. There's the sending. There's the loving aspect of it. The Father is sending the Son out of love to die on our behalf. And then all the way back to the beginning of John's gospel, the gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in 110, he says, that Word becomes flesh. So I think what John is trying to do is connect these two thoughts that out of love, the Father sends the Son. So in His love for us, He sends the Son to die on our behalf. That was that which was from the beginning, that was decided in eternity. Before the world was ever created, the Father and Son and Spirit cooperated together and made this covenant of redemption, if you want to call it that. They decided to send the Son to die on our behalf. The Holy Spirit would then apply those benefits to us and that's how we are saved. So when he says, that which was heard from the beginning, it's, it's the gospel message. The idea of love coming on our behalf, 
to die for our sins, to bring us back to the Father. That's the gospel message. It's not just this blanket love statement. He's not going with this, this cookie idea of love everyone and everything will be happy. Peace, love. It's not the concept. He's actually rooting his message in the whole biblical story. He's tying love to the rest of the message of Scripture. That's what he's saying. That is his idea of love. That was his from the beginning. So why does he say this message that you have heard is from the beginning that you should love one another? He's saying that our love for one another testifies. It preaches and shows the world that the God the God's plan of redemption from eternity is true. So when you and I love one another, whenever we apply the application of that gospel message to our lives, we start loving and spending time together and sacrificing one another. It's a testimony to the, to the truth of the gospel. So loving one another is not this, this cookie idea like I brought it up before that we're called just to be happy and to love everyone and treat everyone nice and not be judgmental. No, it's a testimony to the gospel. It involves confrontation of sin. Jesus comes to die for sin. It involves those things in order that we can be reconciled back to the Father. So are you loving one another? says the counter to this. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. I'm going to read one other verse from the Gospel of John. I think what John does very frequently is he ties his Gospel, the Gospel of John, to this. He frequently alludes to it, and I think we'll see that throughout this whole this whole chapter. But John 8, 24 says this, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Okay? The first question we want to ask is, where do we see the devil murdering from the beginning? We don't see any testimony of the devil coming and murdering anyone all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So what is he alluding to? What is John tying into? I think what John is doing is the same thing the author of Genesis is doing. He ties the death of Abel and, and Cain murdering Abel. He ties it back to the serpent's temptation in the garden. Back in Genesis, whenever Abel, or whenever Cain was tempted to murder of his brother, this is what happens. He says, um, sin is at the door crouching, seeking to strike at you, desiring to rule over you. He tells him to flee from it. This, it's as if sin is described like a serpent, similar to the garden, waiting outside of his door, desiring to rule over him and strike him just as it struck Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, what happens in the story? Cain then kills his brother. And I think what the gospel, I mean, I think what Genesis, the author of Genesis, Moses says, and what he's trying to do is connect 
Cain and Abel stories is the story of Adam and Eve. You remember back several, I'd say years ago, one of those coming events is we talked about the many allusions to this. And I think what John is doing is speaking of the same thing. He says that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And now, once again, he says, when you don't love your brother, you're relaxing throughout scripture we have this narrative going on ever since the garden of eden you have the seed of the serpent you have the seed of promise these two will be combating against one another over and over and over until christ crushes the head of the serpent on the cross and sets us free and here we see when you hate your brother you're acting like a serpent same thing that Jesus says. He accuses the Pharisees. What's he say to the Pharisees? He says, you're a brood of vipers. What's a brood? It's a seed. What's a viper? It's a serpent. He's saying you're acting like your father, the serpent, from the garden. Yes, see, this is that this whole lineage of, of these two combating against one another. And he is saying, whenever you don't love your brother, whenever you're not loving and you're not loving your brothers in Christ, you're acting like Cain who was a murderer. You're acting like you're the part of the seed of the serpent. He says, love one another. This is a testimony that you're part of this new creation or this new humanity. When you love one another, it testifies to the gospel. It testifies that you're part of this new creation in Christ. Love is very significant in the, in the Bible. We don't want to downplay the significance of love. Love doesn't mean that we ignore sin here. It's very much rooted in Scripture. Jesus, the whole idea of love is He comes to die on our behalf to reconcile us. Out of the Father's love, Jesus comes to die for our sins. Therefore, sin and love, we must confront sin. We can't ignore it. When people say, God is love, therefore you should ignore my sin, they completely are ignorant of the whole biblical narrative and the whole understanding of what the Bible says about love. look like? It's easy to talk about love and, and hate. How do we apply this to our lives? What's this look like as Duke Parents in the Temple Baptist Church? Are you self-sacrificing for those in church? Are you sacrificing your time, your energy, your love? Or are we just people who need to have grace? Are these people who are investing in your life sharing your life with others in church, giving up of your time and energy for them. This is what love looks like, self-sacrificial loving. This, this is when, when lost people see this, this is not something they normally see. It's easy to say that lost people love people. That's certainly true. 
as Tyler said this morning in Bible study, it's just a testimony of common grace that people are not as wicked as they could be. But by the grace of God, there's still some signs of grace in them. I think that's why in Romans 1, Paul talks about it's plain to everyone in creation that God is true. It testifies against them. The law is written upon their hearts. That's why they're not as wicked or as evil as they could be. Adolf Hitler could have been a more wicked person, but by the grace of God, he was not. Everything he did was wicked, but he could have been worse. That can be said as true of any of these dictators or terrible people throughout our history. It's only by the grace of God they were not as wicked as they could be. It's only by the grace of God we are not as wicked as we should be.
And that's what John is getting at. In the midst of persecution, loving one another, sacrificing for one another, that is how you make it through these trials. Are you being able to love one another in the midst of opposition? Are you loving the brothers and sisters? Are you helping those in need in the church? That's what this love looks like. And that's what he says. Struggle with it at times. Well, I just don't struggle to 
gospel communicates clearly with our need for the gospel and our need for Jesus, calling for us to constantly look to Christ. But some have been born again, and their lives are characterized by love and consideration towards Jesus and the law of Christ. Even in spite of our sin, we died for the very same people who are yelling crucify us. The very same people who are nailing us to the cross. Are you self-sacrificing for them? Because you love us enough. Verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The way that we know God's love for us is because he laid down his life for us. Now we see a picture of it. We know what love looks like because we see it depicted on the cross. Therefore, we now must live it out in our lives. We must lay down our lives just as Christ did for us. Jesus is our, our, our picture, that we're, our model that, that we're trying to live our lives like. Now we're called to go out and do the same. He is our example. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I think a good example of what this looks like, you guys remember back in Genesis, as soon as they received the Holy Spirit, what happened? All things in common. Guys, right before I think this is promoting socialism, but I think this is an idea that Christians, they cared so much for one another, they said, my property is of no value to me. The things that I have are of no value. I see Christian community and caring for my brother is more important than anything that I can have. It's a self-sacrifice that is. We don't need a government to say, here, regulate and give all these things to people. It's not saying that that's a bad thing, but what I'm saying is we don't need that in the Christian world. As, as believers in Christ, we should be doing this for one another. That's what the church is for. We should be self-sacrificing for one another. The giving of our goods. When we see a brother and sister in need, we run to help out. We run to their aid. of the world are of no value to us, yet Jesus is of greater value. That makes Jesus look good. It's the contrary to the prosperity gospel. The idea that trust Jesus and all things will start going well in your life. You'll get everything that you want. That makes possessions look good, not Christ. The Christian's narrative is the complete opposite. It says we see everything the world has to offer and it's of no value to us. I'm willing to sacrifice what I have because Jesus is sufficient. He is greater. That makes Jesus look good. That's what love looks like. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. It's not enough just to say I love you. 
going to face that day before us. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. For whatever our, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows everything. Beloved, if our heart, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask we receive from Him because He keeps His commandments and we do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that we abide in Him and by the Spirit of Him who is within us. So what did John do? As he concludes this letter, he just gave a really hard test. He calls us to examine our hearts and determine whether we're really loving one another. And he says this, where does our assurance come from when we start doubting and when we start failing at this test? God reassures our hearts before Him. God is our assurance. This is encouragement for the faint-hearted, but look how how He also concludes. He reminds us this is a command. Both it's assurance, but it's also a very weighty command for us. He recognizes the fact that this is going to be a struggle for us. While sin is still in the world, we're going to struggle with loving one another. But at the same time, we're commanded to do so. We're also given assurance whenever we fail at it. So he calls us to take the command seriously, but it also points us back to Christ. It points us back to constantly looking to Christ. Whenever you're struggling to love a brother or sister in Christ, look to Christ. Keep Christ dying on your behalf, and Jesus loves you. When you have no just reason for him to love you, look to his love. Then, beloved, look to Christ. That's what this is all about. It's a difficult task because it involves great sacrifice. To point the baby into this text is not easy. It's very easy to say the words, but the actions, that's where it gets difficult because people are unloving. They do things to hurt one another. The difficulty comes when trials come and we're longing for Christ. But we're going to spend in the same words that Christ such a way that we that we're empowered to have the ability to love one another with assurance that we extend forgiveness to the difficult and that we forgive graciously 